Amen. Take a seat if you would. Have we awkwardly waved to people yet? No. no. Let's awkwardly wave. Make sure it's real awkward. Okay. If you all want to wave to people, I think that camera is on. So, hi everybody. I think, yeah, I see the light. Hello. Good to see you. Uh, how's the new year going? Three days in, are, are we doing better? Yeah? Any, any, have, have you, uh, have you made any resolutions or did we learn our lesson? <laughs> Steve, you probably resolved to wear bigger hats. I don't, I'm ignoring the t-shirt and the jacket, especially today. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a rough day today. Uh, but how, the, the resolution things, has, has anything going Remember the words that we used to give? I think 2020 was the first one I ever caught on. Everyone would say, the word for my year this year is going to be, and they set this like really pretentious word. <laughs> Have we, did, were we doing that? Uh, 2021, uh, my wife and I were talking. She has a word, and I'll, and I'll leave it to her. My words are adapt and, and, and keep moving and pivot. <laughs> it seems to be my, my lesson. And for you Friends fans, pivot. Yes. Pivot? Okay. It's kind of grim, but it just seems like it's the way to go, right? We need to remain quick on the feet. So goals for the year, they're tricky. Uh, How big do you make them? Do you make them? Are you just making them because everybody else is making them? How do we make goals after we come off of a year like 2020? It was difficult for many. And as I was looking forward to this Sunday, the first Sunday of the new year, the the Sunday where we teach whatever God tends to lead us lead pastors, I was thinking, how do we kick it off, coming off of a difficult time and entering in, hopefully, to a more normal place, a normal version of life after the difficulties have happened? And so I was drawn to this book of Ezra. How many of you have ever heard or read the book of Ezra? Not the band better than Ezra, because the book is better than better than Ezra, but it's Dylan and I were listening to Better Than Ezra today just, just to do it, and he'd never heard of them, and because he's young. And uh, I was like, this is really not good music. And so we we better than Ezra. But how many of you, that's sorry, how many of you have ever read the book of Ezra? Okay, a couple. Good. Ezra is a fascinating book. Ezra happens at this time in Israel's history, and I love history, and I love the Old Testament history. Ezra comes into into the picture around the same time, give or take 80 years, uh, as Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the one who came back from exile to rebuild the gates and the city walls, they all happen around the same time. In fact, in Nehemiah 8, Ezra and Nehemiah are seen in the same place at the same time. And so they're, they're contemporaries. Also during this time, the book of First and Second Chronicles was most likely written. These books happen at the later end of the Jewish scriptures. In ours, in our scriptures, we kind of put them towards the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Luke, and Numbers, and right in the beginning after Samuel, we put First and Second Chronicles. It's meant to be a history book. It's meant to look back at a time when Israel came back from exile. Exile, the place where God sent them when Israel forgot who they were. Remember the prophets, those big scary prophets, the minor prophets that are in the Bible that we kind of go, oh man, those guys are weird. Half of the minor prophets 
roughly, are pre-exilic, meaning they're the ones warning the people of Israel, saying, hey, look, don't go down this path that you're going down. So you have Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, Amos, Hosea, all saying, look, don't, don't go this way. Repent. And Israel didn't. And so what happens? The nation's divided, and then the north goes off to one place, and the south goes off to another place, Assyria and Babylon, and then they're in exile for like 80 years, 70, 80 years. And then they come back, and the other half of the prophets, Haggai, Joel, Malachi, or if you're Italian, Malachi, all of these point to post-exilic. Someone got the Malachi joke, thank you. They, they are considered post-exilic. They're looking back at the exile and then looking forward to what's coming. And so Ezra and Nehemiah and Chronicles kind of sit right in this middle here. And they ask the question, what does this new normal look like? How do we, as believers, prepare for our lives coming out of our exile? Because if exile is an absence of family, if exile is an absence of life as normal, we've all been in some kind of exile recently, right? We're away from our work, or we're working in our pajamas. Some of us don't have work. Some of us have been unemployed since March. We're not doing our normal life. I mean, we've adapted. We've made do. But it's not normal. It's not what it used to be. In a way, all of us are in some kind or coming back or about to come back from some kind of exile. And yes, we've adapted, but it's nothing of what it used to be. And so how do we prepare for our lives in 2021 for what the new normal might look like? Now, Scripture is constantly teaching us that God speaks to people where they are at that specific time, and he makes the promises to those specific people in that place. Our privilege, then, as we read Scripture, is we're, in a way, eavesdropping on the conversation, and we're taking little pieces and nuggets of what God might be saying to those people, and we take them and we apply some of the implications to our lives in our present places. So in a way, we're hearing the story of Israel, how they came back and what they did to come back. And we're saying, what, in those, what are those principles that we can apply to our lives as we come back from our exile? Ezra in chapter three will show us three principles that I want us to look at today. Three of them as we come back, three of them that we can embody in our lives and how we rebuild our life. So as we begin to consider what it will be like to eventually come back, I want us to write these down for you and for our church. What does it look like? Ezra 3, if you look with me, Ezra 3, 1 says this, the Israelites made their homes in their towns. So they'd come back, King Cyrus had sent them back and there was a kind of like uh, this king says yes, this king says no, this king finally says yes, and there's kind of this wishy-washy thing going back. But finally they come back. The first two chapters of Ezra is Ezra uh, taking a, a census or counting what all has returned, okay? Not every single person of Israel went to exile. They took a select amount of people, and Ezra is counting the people that are coming back. 
And then after they're all settled in, this is about a hundred years after they had returned, all of the Israelites gather in the seventh month. If you're really nerdy, you might like this. It's the festival of Sukkot. It's the festival of tabernacles that they'd celebrate every year to honor what happened while they're wandering in the 40 years of another exile in the desert of Exodus. And so they come back in the seventh month and all of them gathered together in Jerusalem. The words gathered together is what I want us to focus on here. It's the picture of unity. They were unified. The phrase at all of them gathered is four words in Hebrew. It's yam, asaf, echad, yish. I know you want to say one of those, so let's say yish. yish. Yeah, yish. Yeah, it, says, it, means, it means man. So when you hear someone go yish, they're saying, oh man. Bet you didn't know that. Okay, free one. So as the people came together, the translation should say this. When they assembled together, they came together as one unified people. Can you imagine what that might look like? The word unified, having the force of one is what it means. Not spread out, not you go your way, you go your way, and we're all running our own plays on this field of life. No, no, no. They came together as the force of one, as one person, as one people group. In other words, they were unified in what they needed to do, and in them there was no question at all. This is fascinating to me because after 80 years of being taken to Babylon, they come back with all the same idea. You expect them to be powerless. You expect them to mope around and, oh, here we are back again. Everything's destroyed because everything was destroyed. You expect them to be divided. The different opinions. I think we do this first. I think we do this first. I think we go here first. No, no, no. They all got together. And they all agreed that day in in Israel, we're going to go this way. We're unified. Now, we've been apart from each other, mostly, for about 10 months. Have you seen the divisions that are taking place in our lives? And it's only 10 months. Multiply that by another 69 years and two months. This, we are divided. There, are, there was an election that is still causing division. There were a, there's a virus. There's protests. There's counter-protests. There's Facebook arguments and Twitter feuds and cancels. And we have no idea what the others are saying. And so we have a divided people. Everyone has their own idea of what they should be doing. And the result is anything but unity. And that's only 10 months. Imagine 80 years. And I don't take anything that's going on very lightly. Not at all. It's, it's what's happening is real in our nation. Each one of these things is an important discussion to have. However, the divisions that I witness is absolutely terrifying. And I've fallen into a few of them. I I talk to you not as someone who is the king of unity. No, no, no. I've taken the bait on some of these divisions. And I've realized this, that nothing will kill the message of the church more than division. If the enemy wants to do anything to silence the church, first of all, I think he isolates us because the Christian faith is not meant to be lived on your own. 
The first thing that happens is there's isolation. What comes after isolation? Each one of us is in our own world. Each one of us has our own ideas of how life should be. Isolation, then you become self, uh, self-sustaining or, or you're your own judgment. You're your own choir. And then your ideas are better than those person's ideas. And so you argue. And then there's division. And then there's name-calling. You're this, you're this. I can't believe you said that on your whatever page. I can't believe you voted this way. I can't believe you don't agree with everything I agree with. And all of a sudden, boom, division. And now what are we doing? We're taking each other out. The worst thing that happens, and the enemy is doing this to us. Open your eyes. It's happening to us. We're all being subject to friendly fire. That's what's happening to the church. Unity is not here. And unity doesn't mean that everyone agrees with what you think. That's not here. Being the same, being monolithic, where we all wear the same flannels and the same pants. Yes, we would wear flannels if I had my choice all the time. But, and they might be gray or green or maybe 49 or red, and that's what we would do. If we had our choice, my choice. But unity doesn't mean you all agree with me. No, no, no. We're allowed to have different opinions. The unity that's happening there that looks at here is we all agree on one thing. Christ. What do we gather around? Don't gather around my opinions. It would be nice. Everyone would be a lot better driver if they drove like me, right? No, no. We, we, we gather in unity around the person of Christ and what he's doing. Can we agree on that first? Lord, I hope so. That's what the unity is around. Paul talks about unity all the time in each one of his epistles. And he says, unity, be unified. And this is his concept. Not that every Christian would be the same, but that everyone would be united around Christ despite their different perspectives, personalities, and experiences. Which seems impossible. Why? Because we elevate our personalities, our experience, and our values above the other person. And that never brings unity. Here's how Paul says to embody unity. Humility, gentleness, patience, and endurance. Patience and endurance does not sound fun, right? No, but these are what it takes. In all the epistles, you can see this is how you embody unity. You have those four qualities. Now, I've had a lot of hecklers in my time teaching. The worst was a... a, it's a whole other story, but it was in California. There was a demon-possessed woman in the, in the audience, and every time I said Jesus, she'd shout at me, so it just kind of got fun, right? One of the worst I had was my son on Christmas Eve. Are any of you watching that? I was. Okay, we're sitting down here. Carrie takes the boys downstairs, and she tries like mad to keep them from rushing the stage because they will do so. And so if you hear them, they're playing down there. There's on the TV. There's other families with kids down there. And so... Uh, but Judah stayed up here for Christmas Eve, and he sat right in front of me and started talking back. And I'm like, dude, you're my kid. I will take away everything Santa bought you. But he sat there, answered every question. I would make something, and he would go, that's not funny. True story. It was like, what am I going to do about this? The worst thing I can do is from where I was standing, say, Judah, be quiet. It's what I wanted to do, but it's the worst thing I can do. 
Why? Judah doesn't know what's going on. It's his first time he's really sat in church without supervision. And so he, this is awesome for him. He's not even in a chair. He's loving this. And he's inching, and he gets to hold a candle that will eventually be on fire. He's having a great time. Could you imagine what it would have done to him if I shut him down? It would have crushed his five-year-old spirit. But what could I do? In that situation, it's small, right? But in that situation, what I need to embody? Patience, gentleness, humility, endurance, and also restraint, right? So when I get done, I sit down. I don't scold him. Put my arm around him. I light his candle and I say, don't burn yourself. I bring him into the conversation and I start showing him what it means to sit in church and listen, something that he learns. And the next time he gets better and better and better. This is unity. When someone is annoying you, you don't go out and shut them down. Oh, I told them on Facebook. No, you didn't. No one ever wins a Facebook argument. Oh, I told them in the grocery store when they had their mask below their nose. Oh, I showed them. You didn't. He just made it worse. What's the best thing you can do? Patience. Endurance. Humility. The first principle that we need to come to in this coming year is embodying unity. Not our own version of unity, but the unity that's around Christ. Unity here is coming around the common goal of Jesus. Because the reality is, the outside pressures are avoiding the church. It's the only thing that we can do is to stand together as one person, as they did in Ezra, and prevent the enemy from destroying us. That division is moving away from what God has in store for us. And in Ezra, the people said, you know what? We're binding together, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, and we're going to move forward and retake this land. After they do this, they, they establish two goals. Unity is what they embodied. And then they have the first goal. I'm going to rebuild the broken altar of God. That's what they do in, in Ezra 3. Rebuild the altar. That's where people can once again respond to what God is calling them to. The altar was this place in the temple that symbolized the restoration between God and humans. The altar was where you put your sacrifice. The altar was where you responded to what God was calling you to do. And in worship, being led by his spirit, you would come to the altar and you would walk away restored, forgiven, sanctified. You'd be atoned for your guilt. It was where we would receive forgiveness, justification, blessing, and life. The altar was this place for uh, the people of Israel that was this mysterious yet miraculous place because it was believed that God's presence would hover over the altar. And though it was always on fire, it never burned. And so there was this presence of God there and they would come to there, they would give of themselves their sacrifices and they would walk away changed. The altar represents something. The altar represents for us a response. How do we respond to God? Because 
The altar is being rebuilt, so the people are saying, look, we're going to rebuild this altar, not so that we can have fun worship services. No, we want to rebuild this altar so you and I can follow God's call and respond in the areas of our lives where God is calling us to respond. Response is something that we're not very good at. And it was something that they weren't very good at either in Ezra. In fact, when they came back, they really loved and enjoyed studying the scripture, gaining knowledge from scripture. They would memorize it. They would write books about it like we would. And they would just study and study and study and study. But here's what was missing. In all of the study, they didn't respond. They knew the answers, but they didn't let the answers change their hearts. In fact, here is the beginning of the movement of Phariseeism. Remember the Pharisees in the gospel that Jesus spends a lot of his time talking about? The Pharisees began here. In fact, here's what Jesus says in 539, John, John 539. You study the scripture, Pharisees, he's talking to the Pharisees, but you don't know what they are revealing. You study the scripture, but you don't let them change you. They would learn all they could, but the knowledge never, learned to, never led to transformation. They worshiped the knowledge of God, but they never responded to worship God. This is something that I think that we've come uh, to slip into in our day. The church has become very good at studying scripture. And scripture is great. Don't mishear me. Scripture is the authoritative word of God useful for our lives. It's what we use to, to dictate our ethics and our theology. It all goes back to scripture. But studying the scripture to just study the scripture is pointless. The scripture is a living, breathing word of God. And when it points and calls something out to us, our job is to respond and if I'm honest with myself, and if I can call some of us out on this, we don't respond well. We don't. Either we don't like what we hear, we don't like what we read, and so we explain it away or we just ignore it and say, oh, that was for them. That didn't matter to me. So we don't respond. Or we soak up so much information that we don't really know what to do with it because we've learned so much that we're not sure where to go. We have everyone's point of view and so we become paralyzed. There's this idea that that's how we're getting as a society. We hear so much information and we bring in so much information but we never respond. So in essence, we have everything we need to know but we have no idea what to do about it. God's people that day said, look, we're not just going to study the scriptures we're going to become a people who rebuild the altar in our lives so that we can respond to the way God is leading us. That's what the altar was for. What would it look like for you to rebuild the place in your heart where God is trying to get your attention, but not just to get your attention, God's trying to move you. God's revelation will always lead to transformation, but there's the middle step that we don't like. Revelation demands a response that will lead to transformation. 
The, the knowledge needs to be applied and lived in order for us to be changed. And that change place is the response, and that happens at the altar. The people say, we're going to rebuild the altar. Here's, here's what it looks like. You want toast in the morning. Maybe you eat toast. I don't know. I eat toast at night. But So you get the bread out. You put it in the toaster. You get the peanut butter and jelly, because that's how the proper way to eat toast the melted peanut butter and the nice jelly. It's really delicious. You should try it. Uh, if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. Um, but you get all this out. You get the little napkin or paper towel or perhaps you're fancy and use a plate. And you put it all in. You put the bread in. Response is pushing the toaster down. If you have all the information and all the ingredients, but you don't cook the bread, you're not going to have toast. Or you pull into a gas station. You put your credit card in and you wait, right? You have to wait real quickly because it says, don't touch your card. And all of a sudden, move it. Move it quickly. Put it in your code. Get it out fast. It's this, this dance that you do with the gas pump. And so you're sitting there and you, you put the pump in the, the nozzle and thing in your car. You go to the thing. You punch in all the numbers. You answer their five billion questions. No, I don't want a car wash. And then you get everything set. Response is squeezing the trigger in order to get the gas into your car. Response looks like my football team today. You have the resemblance of a team, but there's 19 injuries, and so you're going to go play the Seahawks, and you're going to get smashed. Response is fielding a team with injuries. Response is playing a game with no players. Response is what leads you to the change that you're seeking. That was my attempt to say my team is going to get hammered today. I know where you live, and I have a lot of toilet paper. That's a hot commodity around here. Response is our action to the information that we've been giving. God is calling us to respond, and so how do we begin to respond the same way you and I begin to walk? God calls you to response. The first thing that you do Yes, and you take a step. God calls you again. Yes, and you take another step. And pretty soon God starts calling and you begin this life of response and responding to God becomes just as easy as walking. But those first few steps are scary because, because he's going to call you and he's not gonna call you to the big things first. He's gonna call you to the little things. Hey, take a step, follow me. Talk to that person. Okay, that's one step cool, you've talked to that person, talk to this person. They might look a lot different. Okay, I'm going to go here. And then pretty soon you're taking steps because you've began to build in your life a heart that is willing to respond. You've built in your life an altar and you respond to God. What would it look like for you to be known as someone who is always responding to God's call? The people that day devoted themselves in unity to say, we are going to be a people who respond. When God calls us, we're going to follow. So 2021, may we be unified. May we be responsive. And the last one, may we rebuild the foundations of our temple. Now, I'm not talking about this church of ours. The temple for the people of Israel was this place where God's presence was signified. Here's what happens in Ezra uh, 8 through 11. I took out some of the uh, 
parenthetical statements because there was like eight sentences of parentheses, so we just took those out. In the second month of the second year after the arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shittael, careful with that one, Joshua, the son of Josedek, a different Joshua than you read in Joshua, and the rest of the people began to work. They appointed Levites, 20 years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers and his sons and the sons of Henadad, you know him, and their, dad, and their sons and brothers and all the Levites joined together to supervising the work, the working of the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation for the Lord, for the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments and their trumpets and all the Levites with symbols took, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, the king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good. His love endures. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise because the Lord, to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. The temple, all the way back to Exodus, was this idea that the presence of God was with them. No temple, no presence. But it's clear as you study scripture and you get into 2 Samuel, maybe a part of Kings and Psalms, that God's physical presence isn't always in the temple. It's not that God has to have a temple to live. The temple was a symbol of his presence. And so they started to say, we're going to rebuild this temple because we know that God is with us. So when the temple was destroyed, when Babylon came through, they knocked everything out. They even dug up the foundations and said, he is, this temple is gone. And for the Israelite to hear that happen, that means that God is no longer with us. And so now now they come back and they see, where is God's presence? He's gone. And for many people right now, where one, they are wondering where God is in all of this. Because in their minds, the temple is absolutely destroyed. And I'm not talking about the church here. They're just looking around and saying, there is no presence of God right now. And so the Israelites begin to rebuild the temple as a reminder that God is still with them. It's sort of like this. When I do weddings and we do the fancy ring part, I hold up the ring and I say, this is, this is a ring. I could be married if I went off. I'm still married if I take the ring off. It's not like I went not married, married. It's not like I stopped being married when I take the ring off. But what this ring is, is a visual reminder of something. It's a reminder of the promises that are being made today. It's a reminder, and I tell couples this, that that when they have a bad day or when they don't feel loved, this is a reminder of the everlasting love that you have in your spouse. I tell them that even though they feel tempted, this ring serves as a reminder of the vows. It serves as a reminder of the commitment that's being made. The wedding ring is not your marriage. The wedding ring is a reminder of your marriage. The temple was not the presence of God. It was a reminder that God is present. And so they start rebuilding the temple. You notice the language changes a couple times in here. The temple was called this. The temple said the house of God. The palace of God. 
it takes on this language that God has moved into our neighborhood, something that John picks up when he says, Jesus has come down and became one of us. Paul then takes this and says, you know, the, the temple is not his presence of God, but you are the temple where God's spirit rests. He says that in 1 Corinthians. He says, you are God's temple. So what's that tell about us? We are the presence and visual reminders of God to people who think God has abandoned them. Your life, the way you live, is a reminder to everyone who sees you that you are God's presence. And that when they feel that the presence of God is gone, they look to the way you live, they look to the way you act, and they see God's presence embodied in you. This is an idea that God doesn't renege on his promises. God's presence is always with us, no matter what kind of exile we go through. No matter if it's 11 months, 12 months, 80 years, God's presence is still here. That's what the temple meant to the Israelites. That's what your life means to the people who are lost without hope all around us. Not just your individual life, that's important. But what would it look like for the church, the unified body of believers responding to God, to be known that when someone walks into our presence, they see or feel the actual presence of God. The love, acceptance, grace that they so seek. We become the tangible reminders that God is still near. The local body of believers placed in a community to bless the neighborhood and point towards love and hope and remind the people around us that though times are dire, that though the exile is long, God's presence never fails. And through our lives, people come and they see God's presence. They see our lives of response. And then they see our unity in pursuing Christ. And they say, I want some of that in my life. I want the church to be known as a group of followers of Jesus who seek and respond to the power of one to embody the presence of Jesus in the neighborhood around us in the people's lives around us. That's something to strive for in 2021. Three words. Unity, altar, and temple. Unity, following Christ. Altar, responding to the way God leads through his spirit, through the power of his spirit, and becoming the presence of Christ to those around us. What do you say? Are those good words to live by this year? I think so. Doesn't mean we're going to come against, uh, not have opposition. Keep reading in Ezra. I think it's chapter four. The very next chapter, things get a little crazy. They have opposition. Because anything like this, the enemy doesn't like it. He's going to push against it. Sometimes the enemy has a say. But it doesn't mean that our God doesn't win. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are tangibly present in every single one of our lives. That no matter what we're going through, 
no matter what uh, life throws at us, no matter if it's another 10 months or another two weeks, whatever it is, you're present with us. And so Holy Spirit, I, I, I know that you're working in our lives right now. And when you work, you want us to respond. And so as we become aware of your presence, God, may we then respond to the way you're leading us. It takes courage to take that first step, but each additional step gets easier and easier as it goes. And God, the biggest hurdle of it all is may we be unified, not divided. May we be unified around the single focus of Christ. May we not fall into the enemy's traps of name-calling, division, tribalism, anything that we can do to separate ourselves from other people. May we not fall subject to friendly fire. But may we focus on you and each one of us from different starting places with gentleness, humility, endurance, and patience keep pursuing you and responding to the way that you lead us. It's in your name we ask these things. Amen.